This is a Federal News Network podcast. Spring break might be over, but the after effects linger for the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Five cadets on spring break in Florida were hospitalized after ingesting what appeared to be fentanyl-laced cocaine. Here to explain the legal ramifications, the managing director of the law firm Tully Rinky, Sean Timmons. Sean, good to have you back. Thank you. I appreciate that, sir. So what happens in the case of this odd environment, this kind of unique environment of the military academies when on spring break away from the academy, a cadet, in this case a group of cadets, do what other knuckle-headed teens and young adults do when they're on spring break? Very similar to many of my other cases. uh, Three areas that get a lot of individual cadets in trouble or any member of the military, you know, sex, drugs, alcohol, and this fits under the drug label. Clearly, whether it was innocent ingestion or deliberate use, the, the military is going to need to determine which one of those elements it actually ends up being. If it was deliberate use, they're probably their military career is probably over. If it was innocent ingestion and they did not reasonably know that this was cocaine uh, laced fentanyl, they may have a viable defense. That's going to take an investigating officer appointed by the West Point Academy to flush out what actually happened. And who's responsible. So they're, they're facing likely a separation from the academy, though. Well, yeah, it's hard to see how anyone could prove accidental ingestion. Uh, what else would you think is a line of white powder that you put your nose on, I, I guess? Exactly. The only other defenses that might be available would be duress if they were placed in imminent fear of death, if they did not engage in the activity. But unfortunately, on a spring break environment, that argument's not going to be viable. So... Unfortunately, the administrative process at West Point will likely conduct an investigation. They'll hold a preliminary evidentiary hearing, a board potentially, and then they'll be separated. And potentially, depending on where they are in the academy, they may be faced with a debt of six figures plus for their the cost of their education, and they won't be permitted to graduate. So unfortunately, you know, one one time mistake is going to cause a parade of horribles for the rest of their life for each individual. So when they go to get a federal job, they'll have to disclose on their background, this situation, they may not get a security clearance in the future. They may have a difficult time getting other employers, especially government employers, to uh, to hire them. Interesting. So if someone from, you know, some less august institution like Harvard had this and they ended up in the hospital while on spring break, do local police bring charges? Because in addition to the hospitalization, there was the use of illegal substances in a very public way. That's a good question. Generally, the police in the jurisdiction where the event occurred would be the ones with the charging authority. So if it was just overdose of use, probably not going to face any criminal penalties. They, they could face uh, criminal sanctions for public intoxication or public nuisance. Uh, but usually that's a ticketable offense, no different than, say, driving through a stop sign. In the military, that ticketable offense becomes a career-ending event. Right. So someone from a non-military college would just go back and probably go back to their classes, and that would be the end of it as long as they were able to sit upright and concentrate. Basically, yes. That's exactly right. So the punishment difference is catastrophically divergent. The military community puts restrictions on individuals that are far in excess than what the regular ordinary college student would face. Right. And these restrictions extend to their private time outside of the confines of the particular campus. Exactly. They're they're technically considered on duty 24-7, regardless if they're engaged in a private capacity entirely or if they're engaged in behavior um, unrelated to military service. It's still considered while you're in contractually obligated to the military, you are in the military 24-7, everything you do. So it's difficult for younger adults to understand when they go home at night after serving all day in the military, they're still technically on duty. 
and they have to conduct themselves accordingly and, and kind of behave. And if they don't, it, it could result in repercussions to their day-to-day job. And is this true also of the Naval and Air Force Academies? Yes. The military is still stuck in the 1980s zero tolerance for drugs uh, philosophy. They have not changed. Although, you know, 40 jurisdictions have legalized marijuana and have been much more liberal as far as prosecution of drug use, the military is still in the uh, 1980s when it comes to uh, the drug punishment. We're speaking with Sean Timmons, managing director of the law firm Tully Rinky. And just give us an insight into how the judicial proceedings work at these academies. It looks like a trial in a court with opposing counsel and so forth, but it's within the structure of the academy, correct? It's not a judicial branch proceeding. Worst case scenario, these cadets could be charged criminally under Article 112 Alpha of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And if they plead not guilty, they could face a trial by court martial, which would be a hearing in front of senior officers who are a panel who would determine their fate. I do not think they're going to take the uh, court martial process, though. They'll probably accept some kind of administrative disposition where they're separated if they result, go to a court-martial and they lose and they get convicted, they'll have a federal conviction the rest of their life on their record. And that'll make it even more difficult to obtain future employment, professional licenses, other jobs. So the collateral consequences of a federal conviction are far worse than, say, just leaving West Point prematurely. They may be able to clean up leaving West Point prematurely by enrolling in another college down the road and just saying, you know, West Point didn't work out. And a private employer may not dig too deep into it. However, for the federal government, it's, it's going to be a probably a 10-year period before they're able to work for the federal government. Is there any possibility of incarceration for these offenses? Yes. Punishment is, you know, in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, could result in a year or more in incarceration if they were convicted. That usually doesn't happen for mere use alone. Usually it's distribution that results in significant incarceration. Use uh, is usually handled administratively, but if they turn down the administrative process or the Article 15 that's proposed to them and they demand trial by court-martial, the, the, you know, the academy could take it all the way. Wow. And what about the idea of alcohol abuse or something like that where the substance is legal but you just get drunk, you know, either during or after hours? Drunk on duty is another offense and if you show up to work and still intoxicated or inebriated, then that's also another offense. I have that in my office every day. People show up on the flight line having a couple too many drinks the night before and they're supposed to have no alcohol within a certain hour's limitation prior to showing up for duty. Or, or they're just pulled over for it when they're given a DUI. A DUI can be a career ender for any military officer. Right. So if it's midnight on the weekend and you're DUI and you're in one of the academies, it's the same as the cocaine and fentanyl deal. Pretty much. Exactly. And if you're misusing alcohol to the point where it causes an impairment, it could imp- impact your security clearance. It could impact your suitability for commissioning. And there is programs the military has for alcohol and drug abuse Um, If you self-report, you can get help, and they encourage individuals to self-report. But the only way they find out about it is through the situation like Florida where it's a spring break arrest. You're pretty much SOL. You have to self-disclose you have an addiction prior to the the police being involved. And earlier you mentioned the legal fees they could also be facing. Then they would retain counsel such as Tully Rinke or another law firm, and that's out of their pocket. Yes. If they decide to have a civilian counsel with substantial experience, they're going to be spending a significant amount of money defending themselves. Obviously, they would be entitled to a trial defense attorney who's relatively a new attorney who would be assigned to them to help them out. However, the issues with a trial defense attorney is they're usually junior attorneys with no more than one to four years of experience, potentially five or six years if they're a senior officer being defended. But beyond five or six years in the military, you usually move on to more supervisory roles as an attorney and you lose your litigation skills. So the 
any attorney assigned to these cadets would be relatively new and inexperienced. So that would be the equivalent of, say, a public defender in the private sector. Yes, exactly. And the public defender, as we all know, they have an incentive to get you to deal and move on with your life. If you really need aggressive representation, you have to pay out of pocket, unfortunately. And I guess the motivation for trying cocaine, knowing or not knowing it's laced with fentanyl, that will forever be a mystery in this case, won't it? Probably so. And it very well may have just been uh, an atmosphere where everybody was doing it and they just fell into peer pressure. And I see that quite a bit in my in my cases with my soldiers and airmen and Marines across installations. They believe it's a, it's a one-time event, that nobody's going to know about it. And honestly, frankly, statistically speaking, that's probably accurate. I mean, the, the number in uniform who've actually experimented with, with unlawful drugs has been is probably very high. And only a small percentage actually get caught. But if you do get caught, the repercussions are catastrophic. Sean Timmons is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.